Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. I've gotten four or five variations on this in Twitter, um, over on Facebook, and you know, I even got one in email. Uh, this guy writes, so why won't Pelosi and Schumer simply pass legislation to reopen the government? And apparently... The people who keep asking this and, and, you know, with increasing frequency don't know that Pelosi and Schumer have already passed legislation to open the government. You know, it passed the United States Senate back in December. It passed the U.S. House just a few weeks ago. The Democrats are doing everything they can to open the government. It is Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell who are keeping it shut down, which raises the question, Why? Why do you think that this is going on? Here's a couple of possibilities. Rachel Maddow floated the idea that it's all about shutting down and destroying the FBI. The FBI opened an investigation of Donald Trump in the first weeks of his presidency, perhaps even a few weeks before that, but right around the time of the election, the FBI opened an active investigation into whether Donald Trump was either wittingly or unwittingly, an agent of a foreign government. Now, that's pretty serious stuff. And that provoked things like, you know, right-wing talk show host Howie Carr out of Boston. He's uh, writing this for the Boston Herald. This is like, you know, a major newspaper, a nationally syndicated or regionally syndicated talk show host who has a, a very substantial audience. When Louise and I lived in New Hampshire, I used to listen to Howie Carr on the radio. You know, he's good at what he does, but here's the piece that he wrote for the Boston Herald. He says, the opening sentence, it's time to abolish the Federal Bureau of Investigation. He writes, the G-men have degenerated into nothing more than a racketeering enterprise, a banana republic-style criminal conspiracy of vast proportions. Now we know that the FBI was plotting a coup against President-elect Trump. And then he asks... Right up front, you know, he says, we've eradicated earlier threats. The Communist Party in La Cosa Nostra is the current police state incarnation of the FBI any less sinister than either of those two mobs. He says, abolishing the FBI may sound like a radical solution, but they've metastasized into a clear and present danger to the Republic. Well, apparently they've, they've turned into a clear and present danger to, you know, a grifter, con man, front man for oligarchs around the world and the Russian mob, the guy in the White House. 
So much so that over at Fox News, Janet or Andrew Napolitano, the Fox News senior judicial analyst, this is from Ken Meyer over at Mediaite, said the FBI has been caught in a plan to undermine President Donald Trump. Napolitano joined Fox and Friends to talk about how FISA warrants factored into the FBI's investigation basically saying that they're inappropriately using FISA warrants to get information on Donald Trump, and then Trump tweets it. Donald Trump tweets, FBI top lawyer confirms unusual steps, which is illegal. That has corrupted them. That has enabled them to gather evidence by unconstitutional means. That's what they did to the president, quoting Judge Napolitano in a tweet. Rachel's position was that, and you can't dispute this, that if you want to destroy the FBI, there's two ways to do it. Very easy, very straightforward ways that Donald Trump is seeking to destroy the FBI. The first is just destroy their morale. In fact, since you don't believe in government, since you believe that the billionaires and the big corporations should handle everything, right? they should be responsible for Social Security, they should be responsible for Medicare, they should be responsible for Medicaid, they should be responsible for all our social welfare programs, at least those that we haven't handed off to churches, you know, it's a twofer. Not only do you take down the FBI, but you take down the entire government. So, number one. And number two, if you work for the FBI, you've got to have a security check. And the security checks get updated every year or two. And these background checks, and one of the things that they look at, one of the things that can destroy your security clearance, is if you are financially insecure. Because that makes you vulnerable to things like bribes or corruption. And, as Rachel pointed out, she said one easy-peasy way to screw up the FBI would be to start taking away paychecks from all those people all at once. And not just the FBI, the other intelligence agencies as well. She says, with that one genius move, you can break the family finances of basically every single law enforcement national security agent in the country. In that one fell swoop with this just one neat trick, you screw up all of their careers. You create security clearance problems for all of them all at once by putting them all under financial strain. The other thing about this, Ross Barkin over at The Guardian writing, Mitch McConnell has now twice blocked Democratic bills to reopen the federal government. And he says it's striking how little Trump and the Senate Republican majority care. And I, I would say it's not that the Republicans don't care about what's happening to 800,000 Americans and, frankly, millions of Americans. Because, you know, when government workers aren't going to work and they're not getting paid, you know, the restaurants in the neighborhood that serve them lunch go out of business or have a crisis. Marriott says that their business is down 25% in Washington, D.C., et cetera, et cetera, right? You get all this. So you've got, you know, people like Paul Ryan who called Social Security a Ponzi scheme. Ronald Reagan talked about starving the beast and that Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, housing programs, welfare programs should all be radically cut if not taken off the books altogether. And, you know, in January, when Trump said, you know, well, this shutdown could go on for years, he was basically saying, you know, the federal government doesn't mean anything to me. Ted Cruz said the same thing back in 2013 when he shut down the government over an attempt to destroy Obamacare. I mean, if you really believe that the federal government is illegitimate, if you really believe that the federal government harms liberty in the United States, why wouldn't you want to shut it down? And in fact, over at the National Review, Kevin Williamson just wrote a piece. He says the temporary shutdown of parts of the federal government is a good argument for the permanent shutdown of parts of the federal government. Right? So it, this is the classic, you know, Reagan fine-tuned this brilliantly. This is the classic Republican strategy. Break government. 
This is why they defunded not the amount of money Social Security can pay to people, but the number of Social Security agents who can answer the phone and help you sign up. This is why, you know, they cut hundreds of millions of dollars in the last budget, the Republicans, out of the Social Security Administration, out of Medicare. So it's harder for you to sign up. It's easier for you to sign up with Medicare Advantage, the private for-profit version of Medicare that UnitedHealthcare sells. Because they don't have any limits on the number of salespeople they can hire. And your and my Social Security and Medicare tax dollars are going right to UnitedHealthcare and through them to the AARP. So when Americans discover that, you know, the services that they like, the government that they like is not working the way it should, then they lose loyalty. Which brings us to, you know, why are the Republicans, why are they voting to give hundreds of millions of dollars to a mobbed up Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, but they won't give anything to the 800,000 Americans who are out of work? and ultimately millions. I mean, the guys who voted to help out the oligarch, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, Mitt Romney, John Cornyn, Richard Burr, Ted Cruz, Ron Johnson, John Thune. I mean, if you want to call any of these guys at 202-224-3121 and just ask them, why is it that you're giving millions of dollars to a Russian oligarch, but you won't even hold a vote on whether or not to put Americans back to work. Why do you love the Russian oligarch more than American workers? Senator McConnell, Senator Graham, Senator Romney, Senator Cornyn, Senator Burr, Senator Cruz, Senator Johnson, Senator Thune. Why do you love a Russian oligarch more than you love American workers? And now Donald Trump's wall has gone totally steel, right? Totally steel. Well, it turns out there's only one company that can make that kind of steel. It's located in Canada. It's called Evraz. It is owned principally by a guy named Roman Abramovich, whose wife is good friends with Ivanka Trump. He is a Russian national with Israeli citizenship. He owns that steel company. Putin owns part of it. That's located in Canada. That's the only one that can manufacture the specific type of metal beams Trump wants for his wall. If that wall is built, Abramovich's company is going to make up to $30 billion. I mean, keep in mind, this wall probably will cost 70 or $80 billion by the time it's done. His company will get huge. By the way, he owns a, a yacht. It's called the Eclipse. It's a $500 million yacht. Donald Trump has vacationed on this yacht. Abramovich applied for residency in Switzerland a couple of years ago. They said, nope, you're engaged in money laundering. And this is all in the public record. Right? A money laundering Israeli citizen Russian oligarch billionaire owns the steel company that is the only company in North America that can make the kind of steel that Donald Trump has now decided he wants his wall made out of. The guy's wife is good friends with Ivanka Trump. What the hell is going on here? You've got a Republican Party that openly hates the government of the United States. You've got a president who was negotiating with a foreign power and with foreign oligarchs to build a hotel or Trump Tower or whatever it is in Russia while he was running for president of the United States. You've got Rudy Giuliani out there trying to desensitize all of us to this, right? Drip, drip, drip. You drop the horrible details and then you walk back from them. And you say, oh, I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. And then, you know, a year later when it comes out as a result of an investigation, what do you say? Well, you say, hey, that's old news. Why are you reporting on that? 
Bob Mueller says that, you know, Trump was fill in the blank, you know, all the stuff that I just said. Yeah, but we already knew that. Rudy Giuliani told us that a year ago. I mean, what the hell is going on here? Why do you think Trump is shutting down the government? This is the Tom Hartman Program. And not just Trump. Why do you think Mitch McConnell and John Thune and Mitt Romney are voting to shut down the government and give hundreds of millions to a Russian oligarch? Hey, you know, you're going to start hearing nonstop weight loss commercials everywhere. And every time you do, I want you to think about Riduzone. It's the only weight loss product I endorse and the one that worked for my wife. Louise wanted to lose a little weight last summer. She read about university research and how one molecule helps regulate appetite. Riduzone is designed to boost levels of that one molecule and your metabolism, too, so you stop craving the wrong foods like too many holiday sweets and you burn calories faster. With her appetite and cravings under control, she said losing weight was easy. She has more energy on her hikes, and she looks amazing. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough, get the only weight loss product I endorse, non-prescription, FDA-accepted Riduzone. While supplies last, to use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off a pack of three bottles plus free shipping. Go to Riduzone.com. That's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E, R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Riduzone.com. Use the promo code TOM. Riduzone.com. Tom Hartman here with you, and we're going to start, in fact, this is our kickoff, a half-hour deep-dive conversation with somebody really worth talking to about issues that are really important. We did this for years on our TV program. We're going to start doing it here. We call it Conversations with Great Minds. Uh, We have a website, conversationswithgreatminds.com, where you can find these archived. And for our first Conversations with Great Mind this year, Darja Mail is here in the studio with us. He's the independent journalist and staff reporter with Truthout. He's the author of Beyond the Green Zone, Dispatches from Unembedded Journalist in Occupied Iraq, and he's reported from the Middle East over the years. He's won the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Journalism. His new book is The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. D-A-H-R-J-A-M-A-I-L, Darja Mail. Darjamail.net is his website, and Darjamail is his Twitter handle. Dar, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Great to be with you. We have talked many times uh, via Skype or telephone or whatever over the, over the many years, actually, but it's yeah. the first time we've sat in the same studio together. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. So uh, what provoked you to, you know, you were a war correspondent. You're an old-fashioned reporter. What took you from that to climate change? It actually started before going to Iraq. I had lived in Alaska from 1996 for 10 years, and I was very into mountain climbing. And so right when I started that, given Arctic amplification, you know, the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet. So even in 1996, when I first started that, the dramatic recession of glaciers, dramatically warming temperatures, no snow on the ground in Anchorage over the holidays, it was unavoidable, you know, just right there. And so that was always in my mind. Even once I went off to Iraq and was reporting there, and I knew I always wanted to come back and start covering this story. And so that's how it started. And then I got into environmental reporting in the wake of the BP oil spill. And then that was basically my segue directly into climate change reporting. And so I wanted to go out on the front lines to the hot spots, the Great Barrier Reef, Amazon, Denali, places where the dramatic change is already happening and evident, and go out with experts and, and try to bring the reader directly into that to give them a very very, very personal experience of what it feels like. And you've done an absolutely brilliant job of that in, in your book, The End of Ice. What are the things that 
that most shocked you in when you were doing your reporting? A lot. I think one of the more profound <clears throat> moments for me came snorkeling over the Great Barrier Reef in uh, early March 2017. It was right when that year's major coral bleaching event was starting. And it's the single largest coral ecosystem on the planet, uh, 1,400 miles long. And going out there with an expert and just snorkeling over, you're kicking your feet for minutes and minutes and minutes, and it's just nothing but bleached white coral. And you know that that water's not going to cool down in time enough, and that's all going to die. And then in the wake of that, that year alone, 30% of the entire reef was killed by that one single event. And and then the next year, 20% by another bleaching event. So just getting how fast this is happening, that literally half the reef gone in a two-year time frame. In the 1990s, Louise and I went out and snorkeled the Great Barrier Reef. And it was just an explosion of color and life. And it was so vital and so vibrant. And I, it's just hard to even think about it just being dead yeah gone you know gone and, and me as well and, and that's another thing i noticed too is that you go out there and there's not near the number of fish and the coral that is still alive and i mean still beautiful and vibrant but it pales in comparison to what it used to be and one of the experts that i interviewed in the chapter i wrote about coral disappearing coral said these visions of the old films from the 70s of that kind of vibrancy of both coral and, and fish count those are going to be relegated to just films old films as, as we go forward deeper into climate disruption to worry about, oh, we just lost another species, or oh, the, there goes that reef, or you know, hey, uh, this particular glacier over here is melting, and it's going to cause, you know, as it goes away, it's going to cause problems for the people who use that river that that glacier creates as a water supply. And these are going from local, kind of micro events, you know, the park in Montana, you know, the mm -hmm. Glacier National Park, to like, you know, really giant areas. I mean, like the Andes, the area around Everest, these mountains that are feeding India and China and central parts of uh, South America. But even those, as dramatic as they are, don't really represent the total scope of the horror of what is happening right now in the world as a consequence of our having burned fossil fuels for almost 200 years. What is that? How do you define that? How, how do you communicate that uh, in a fairly succinct fashion? Well, there's a couple of different ways. One is something I learned from Dr. Harold Wanless, a, a sea level rise expert at University of Miami when I was down there researching for that part of the book. And he said, look, as the Earth moved in and out of the last ice age, we know for scientific fact that for every 100 part per million CO2 added to the atmosphere, there is a corresponding 100 feet of sea level rise. And we have increased the total part per million CO2 in the atmosphere from the Industrial Revolution to now by 130 parts per million. And so he told me this sitting in his office, and I said, so we have 130 feet of sea level rise already baked into the system, and he just nodded. So imagine that, 130 feet. We see recently the... We are at about 130 feet right here in Portland, Oregon, as I recall. Th there you have it. And, and, you know, as evidenced by yet another report that came out just recently, which I'm sure you saw, that there's been a sextuple increase in the amount of melting across the Antarctic since just the 1970s. So right. we're literally watching these ice sheets and glaciers collapsing before our eyes, and we're just waiting for them to catch up. One of the glaciologists I went out into the field with in the book spoke exactly to that, that the heat's baked into the system 
system. It's, you know, the oceans absorb 93% of it. If they hadn't done that, the atmosphere would be 97 degrees hotter than it is today. And that, coupled with sea level rise, coupled with what does it really mean to lose glaciers as far as drinking water and ability to grow food around the planet when we already now today have nearly a billion people in water scarcity. Uh, And so what happens as these glaciers go away? So all of these things together, I think, really show the gravity of the situation and then coupled with the really lack of appropriate governmental response mostly around the entire world you know we have to start really thinking for ourselves about how are we going to live what are we going to do individually and on a community level going into these times setting aside for a moment the possibility that we're actually in a period that's very similar to the beginning of the end permian at the end of that period around 250 million years ago, literally nothing larger than a dog or a cat survived. I mean, all the complex life forms were just wiped out. Uh, the oceans virtually sterilized. 95% of all life on the planet died. That is the obvious, most horrible endpoint. But short of that, how does human civilization survive? when it's as seriously stressed by the kinds of migrations, the kinds of famines, that we're already starting to see right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this is what the Arab Spring was. The, the desert came south 100 miles in Syria. A million farmers lost their farms, went into the big cities, Damascus, and boom, you've got this explosion. Same thing in Egypt, same thing in Tunisia, caused a jack in the price of wheat. I mean, you, you used to work and live in that area and report from there. First of all, am I characterizing this accurately? You and are. Secondly, where do we go with this? What do we do about this? How bad could it get? Well, you've characterized it precisely. And, and I think... It's really hard to see that Western complex civilization does not collapse. The question is, how ugly is that going to be? And then how are we able to reorganize ourselves on the wake of that into a way of being that is more closely tied to the planet and to live more gently and in concert with the earth as opposed to this extractive, treating the earth as an other, take, 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 you know, destroy, pollute, which clearly is unsustainable. And so... I think the silver lining of a collapse will be that you know we have to do this closer to the right way now, closer to an indigenous way of being with the earth and far more respectful and remembering that we are part of the earth and we're not going to get very far without taking care of the earth as we're seeing now. So I think that it's inevitable. The question is not if we're going to see complex civilizations collapse, but, but when. And there's more and more studies coming out on this uh, each passing month. Wow. Right now, this is largely a third world phenomenon, although it's impacting the first world, uh, in particular with things like the refugee crisis. You've got all these people from the Middle East and from Northern Africa who are coming up into Europe, for example. It's already flipped several governments, Orban in Hungary, I forget his name, the guy who's running Poland now. You've got the Alternative for Deutschland movement in Germany. You've got the Yellow Vests in France, although that's maybe a little more complex. But the thing that seems to be common to all of them is a backlash against migration. And much of this migration is basically climate refugees. We're seeing the same thing here in the United States. You've got farmers who've been displaced in Guatemala and in Honduras. We know as a consequence of global climate change, mm-hmm. the government is reacting by becoming repressive. It's an echo of what we inflicted on them in the 80s during the Reagan times. And now they want to come here, uh, you know, and, and, and are coming here, which produced the whole Trump phenomena and that he's riding high. This seems to me like it's just the smallest little sliver sliding into this crack that is going to become very, very wide. A metaphor of an opening door, for example. 
we have, you know, that, that door has not even opened to the point where we can see the light through it. It's just obvious that it's starting to open. How long, in your opinion? How does this play out? Well, the climate changes that are already upon us and the feedback loops that are already kicked in, things are happening so fast. I mean, we could literally see an Arctic without summer sea ice any year now at this point. Estimates range. Which means what? Which means essentially global climate systems go. I mean, we're already seeing massive disruption in one extreme weather event after another, which has become the norm, but that that goes into hyperdrive, you know, the nonlinear feedback loops of huge, giant, immediate temperature shifts across northern Europe, across uh, the northern section. So we could see it in a matter of a year or three. Right. Uh, and, uh, and just sudden famines. Exactly. Crop That's failures. exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Dar Jamil is in the studio with us. Dar, I wrote a book back, I don't know. 15 years ago called Threshold, The Crisis of Western Civilization. And for that book, Louise and I went to Australia in that area. We researched the Maoris we were looking at. And, and, and what fascinated me was the whole story of Captain Cook. You know, he, he showed up in New Zealand and uh, at Murderer's Bay and had his, shall we say, negative experience with the Maori people. But then he sailed on to uh, what we now know of as British Caledonia and several islands along the way. And what he had found in New Zealand was a society that had completely embraced violence. That when the Maori people first showed up in New Zealand, there were these moa birds, which is why they're called the Maoris, these 40, 50 pound birds, 100 pound birds, 500 pound birds, some of them. You could just walk up to them, break their necks and eat them. And they thought, paradise. And for about 200 years, they just they, you know, there, there, there's one graveyard of bird bones that is like 80 acres of bird bones. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Then they ate them all. And then they went after the small mammals and they ate them all. And then they went after the small fish or the large fish around the water and they ate them all. And then they turned to cannibalism. And then they turned cannibalism into a ritual and a religion and a form of governance. They literally, one group, when it went to war with another group, would bring prisoners along as food on the hoof with a rope. Okay. So Cook saw this, wrote about it. Then he goes on to British New Caledonia, which had been occupied or uh, settled by humans maybe 500 years earlier. And they had gone through that entire process and come out the other end. And they, they too had wiped out all their food. But then, and they went through a period of great violence. But then they came to this kind of egalitarian way of living. And when Cook discovered this, he said, this is paradise. And Jefferson, actually, in his diaries, speculated about something like this in North America. You know, where did these people learn their environmental consciousness, their, their egalitarian lifestyle, form of governance that was so deep and profound that we could imitate the, the Iroquois Confederacy in our Constitution to a large extent? That's the indigenous aboriginal values you're talking about, right? It, precisely. And so the question is, I mean, and obviously we're repeating an iteration of, of that same phenomena, you know, to bring us full circle back around, albeit violently and with tremendous suffering and tremendous degradation of, if not the entire planet, vast swaths of it, to come back around to living a way that the native people on this continent already knew. You yeah, know? and it seems that, I mean, there's some substantial evidence that this revolution in thinking actually happened here maybe five four or five thousand years ago regionally 
in particular, but all across the continent. After we wiped out the giant sloth and the, the mammoth and all, you know, all these other, again, easy-to-eat animals. Mm-hmm. That's right. And how have we not repeated that exact same thing? And, yeah. and I think you know that analogy, as well as the analogy earlier that you used of comparing to how much CO2 we've pumped into the atmosphere so fast compared to the events leading up to and causing the Permian mass extinction event. And we seem to be very much so repeating history. And again, I think the question now is, how are we going to choose to comport ourselves during these times individually? Because it is upon us. There's no more future tense about all this stuff. We're watching it unravel and change before our eyes every single day. And so it's going to come down to each of us individually. How do we choose to treat each other and and treat the planet during this time? I was over at the arctic-news.blogspot.com website, one I'm sure you're familiar with, and Malcolm Light, the guy who I think runs it, posted a blog there on January 7th titled Global Extinction Within 18 to 34 Months. In some ways, he's echoing the work and the positions of Guy McPherson, who has been saying for several years now, you know, we're all doomed. Our grandchildren are not going to probably live to see the end of their lives. They're going to see the world destroyed in front of them. And therefore, the only thing that we can do right now is just to learn how to be nice to each other or something, basically going to hospice. I've been very reluctant to embrace a message that bleak. I'm curious your thoughts on it. I would agree with you in that when I, I went through a process of my own looking at all the hard data and doing my research as a journalist and putting all these stories together and connecting all the dots, and for a while I did take that position. It seemed like there's, I do not see a way out of this. I, it just There's no way that all these feedback loops are going to be stopped. There's no way that it's hard to imagine we're going to make it. But I've since, you know, looking at thinking... Even just the sea ice is an, ex- is an example. You know, it was a Navy research uh, piece that came out that I cited a long time ago, predicting it'd be gone by 06, and mm. somehow it's still here, you know, and in other ways of making predictions that have either been completely wrong or grossly inaccurate. And so I've learned to stop making these kinds of predictions and that we don't know what's going to happen. And I still think it's going to be extremely bleak and catastrophic. And I don't see a way around that, but we fundamentally don't know. We haven't been here as a species. We don't know anything could happen at this point. And I'm not kind of throwing a Hail Mary of hope or something like that. But it does come down to I feel morally obliged to still do no matter what I can do to take care of the planet. And I have a a little piece of land where I live that I feel like I am a steward and I make sure I take good care of it and treat people well and try to live in a way and comport myself the right way with others and with the planet going forward. Because things are going to get extremely intense and that is what we're all going to need to do, even though we don't really know for sure where this is going to go. It seems that the the big solutions, though, are not at the level of individual action. They're at the level of government policy. Ideally, they would be, but since there is no political will to enact the solutions that would have to happen to give us even half a chance at a little bit of mitigation, it comes down to us individually and locally. What can we do? How can we start setting up resiliency, doing good stewardship and having resiliency right here in my own home and then starting out in my own community? Amen. Dar Jamail, the brilliant, the new book, The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption. Dar, thanks so much for dropping Thank by. Thank you, Tom. It's great having you here in the studio. drug cartels in the world. Drugs come in, money goes out. But this is not like any drug lord you've ever seen. 
tomorrow, WGN America presents the new original series, Pure, based on the true events of the Mennonite mob. You, Pastor Funk, are going to take down the entire mob all by yourself? I will die before I bring that poison into my community. The series premiere of Pure, tomorrow at 10, 9 central, only on WGN America. Available on Dish, DirecTV, or check your local cable listings. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Uh, George in Chicago. Hey, George, what's on your mind today? In light of the climate discussion you just had, National Public Radio reported in its morning news show yesterday that a uh, report just released by the National Academy of Sciences says that the Antarctic ice mass is deteriorating six, that's right, six times faster than it had previously been estimated. Yes. Seems like the inevitable is ine- inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Uh, appreciate the call. Joan in Manhattan, listening to WBAI. Hey, Joan, what's up? Oh, hi. Yes, could you explain a little bit the science of the reefs, what the reefs do, why they're so important, and how exactly is climate change destroying them? I think it has something to do with the acidification of the oceans and the word bleaching. Does that mm. mean just literally bleaching, taking calcium out of, out of their spine? What exactly is happening? If sure. you could just give me a coral, step-by-step little rundown. Yeah, yeah coral, coral reefs are made up of little tiny animals, and these little animals have an exoskeleton, a skeleton on the outside of their bodies instead of the inside of their bodies. And the skeleton is made up of calcium and other compounds, but it's very heavy in calcium. And they attach themselves to some rocks, grow their little bodies, and then when they die, another one comes along and attaches itself on the top of their little shell, their body, and pretty soon you get millions and millions and millions of these, the dead ones underneath, and then the very top surface of the coral is the living coral. It's the actual currently alive animals on top of the bones, essentially, of thousands of generations of previous little corals. And being animals that have exoskeletons, they are very, very vulnerable to acidic conditions in the ocean because calcium dissolves in presence of acid. Um, They're also very, very sensitive to temperature. And they evolved over millions, hundreds of millions of years to to thrive at one particular fairly narrow range of temperatures. And these are different types of corals in different parts of the world have to have specific different kinds of temperatures. And so we're hitting them with a double whammy right now. As the temperature goes up, the animals are no longer able to live. They can't function. Their bodies don't work the way they're supposed to. They can't. And in many cases, the food that they eat, which are microscopic plants and, and in some cases microscopic animals, depending on the kind of coral that that are kind of floating by, that food is no longer available as a consequence of changes in temperature. And then on top of that, their ability to grow new skeletons, their ability to reproduce, to, uh, you know, I don't recall if they lay eggs or not, but however it is the corals reproduce, that, that whole ability gets inhibited by the acidity of the ocean. And as the oceans absorb carbon dioxide, and they are absorbing a good chunk of the carbon dioxide that we're releasing, and they're absorbing 93% of the heat we're releasing right now, If the oceans were not acting as a heat sink, just the heat that we have thrown into the atmosphere since 1800 would cause our atmosphere right now to be 97 degrees warmer than it is. We would all be dead. Everything on land would be dead right now if it wasn't for the oceans absorbing all this heat. Well, what's happening is that heat is then killing the oceans. So when we say coral bleaching, what we're talking about is that outer layer of little tiny coral animals. They're the ones that have all the the pigment they die. And when they die, their bodily fluids just get dispersed into the ocean and all that's left behind is the little 
uh, exoskeleton, the little out, outer shell, and that's just pure calcium, and so it looks white. So it looks like somebody's poured bleach on the coral, but there's no actual bleach involved. This has nothing to do with chlorine. It means that they're dying. Did I answer your question okay, Joan? Very much. Okay. Thanks a lot, Joan, and thanks for listening to WBA. I appreciate it. Our book club selection today is titled The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. The dedication of the book, this book is dedicated to the future generations of all species. Know that there were many of us who did what we could. This is from the introduction. The fall lasts long enough that I have time to watch the blue ice race upward, eons of time compressed into glacial ice flashing by in fractions of seconds. I assume I've fallen far enough that I've pulled my climbing partner, Sean, into the crevasse with me. This is what it's like to die in the mountains, a voice in my head tells me. Just as my mind completes that thought, the rope wrenches my climbing harness up. I bounce languidly up and down as the dynamic physics inherent in the rope play themselves out. Somehow, Sean has checked my fall while still on the surface of the glacier. I brush the snow and chunks of ice from my hair, arms, and chest and pull down the sleeves of my shirt. Finding my glacier glasses hanging from the pocket of my climbing bib, I tuck them away. I check myself for injuries and incredibly find none. Assessing my situation, I find there's no ice shelf nearby to ease the tension from the rope so Sean can begin setting up a pulley system to extract me. I look down, nothing but blackness. I look at the wall of blue ice directly in front of me, take a deep breath, and peer up into the tiny hole into which I'd fallen when I'd punched through the snow bridge spanning the crevasse. The same bridge Sean had crossed without incident as we made our way up Alaska's Matanuska Glacier toward Mount Marcus Baker in the Chugach Range. You get to look down one more time, then that's it, I tell myself out loud. Again, there's only a black void yawning beneath me, swallowing everything, even sound. My stomach clenches. I remind myself to breathe. Sean, are you okay, I yell as I clamp my mechanical ascenders to the rope in preparation to climb up. Yeah, I'm all right, but I'm right on the edge, he calls back. I can't set an anchor to get out of the system, so don't ascend. We're going to have to wait for the other guys to catch up. Time passes. The onset of hyperthermia means I can't control my body from periodically shaking. To ignore my fear of dying, I gaze meditatively at the ice a few feet in front of me as I dangle. The miniature air pockets found in the whiter ice near the top of the glacier have long since been compressed, producing the mesmerizing beauty of centuries-old turquoise ice. Slightly deeper into the crevasse is ice that has been there since long before the Neanderthals. I hang suspended in silence, mindful not to move out of fear of dislodging Sean. Giving my full attention to the ice immediately within my vision, I focus on how the gently refracting light from above seems to penetrate and reflect off the perfectly smooth wall. Staring into it, the blue seems infinite. Despite the danger of my situation, the glacier's beauty calms me. Delicate snowflakes and their infinite possibilities of form land on mountainous terrain. Under its own weight, the snow is compressed into glaciers that scour and shape the face of the earth. Countless millions of tons of weight, aided by the force of gravity, push and pull these frozen rivers downhill, carving out cirques and troughs from uplifted geologic plates and sculpting the majestic heights of mountains that I have been drawn to since I was young. Eventually, our other two teammates arrive and work to extract Sean from his perch just six inches from the edge of the crevasse. All three of them set up a three-way pulley system. Laboriously, my teammates begin to haul me up, inches at a time, out of what nearly became my tomb. 
I continue to focus on the delicately shifting blades of blue in the ice as I draw closer to the surface, mesmerized by its raw beauty. My teammates pull me up to the lip of the crevasse. I repeatedly plunge the pick of my ice axe into the snow and haul myself out, never before as grateful for being on top of a glacier. I stand and gaze up at the mountain to the west, behind which the sun has just set. Snow plumes stream off one of its ridges, turned into ruddy red ribbons by the setting snow. Snowflakes flicker as they float into space. As relief floods my shivering body, I roar in gratitude and relief. Utterly overwhelmed by being alive and surrounded by the beauty of the mountain world, I hug each of my three climbing partners. Now safe, it sinks in how close to death I've been. That was Earth Day 2003. In hindsight, I believe the emotion I felt then stemmed in part from something else. A deeper consciousness that the ice that I had seen, which had existed for eons, was vanishing. Seven years of climbing in Alaska had provided me with a front row seat from where I could witness the dramatic impact of human-caused climate disruption. Each year we found the toe of the glacier had shriveled further. Each year for the annual early ice season festival on this glacier, we found ourselves hiking further up the crusty frozen mud left behind by rapidly retreating terminus. Each year the parking lot was moved closer to the glacier, only to be left further away as the ice withdrew. Even sections of Denali, which stands over 20,000 feet tall and is roughly 250 miles from the Arctic Circle, had undergone startling changes. The ice of its glaciers was disappearing quickly. Our planet is rapidly changing, and what we are witnessing is unlike anything that has occurred in nature or even geologic history. The heat-trapping nature of carbon dioxide and methane, both greenhouse gases, has been scientific fact for decades. And according to NASA, there is no question that increased levels of greenhouse gases must cause the Earth to warm in response. Evidence shows that greenhouse gas emissions are causing the Earth to warm 10 times faster than it should. And the ramifications of this are being felt quite literally throughout the entire biosphere. The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. Senator Jeff Merkley is on the line with us. Senator, how are you and what's up? I'm fine. Of course, I'm very frustrated with the, the state of America. Uh, it's a time to be angry. It's a time to be frustrated. And unfortunately, this is not a time when we have any leadership working to, to address education and health care and housing and living wage jobs. Well, in fact, it seems that we have the exact opposite. We have an administration that seems to be uh, committed to driving us back to the late 1950s when the entire state of Virginia shut down their schools in response to Brown versus Board for a year. This is, you know, how it seems to me that Betsy DeVos is running the education department, uh, Pruitt, and now what's the guy who's replaced him, Walker, is running the EPA. I mean, you, you go through the list. It's like they want to take us back two generations. Oh, it's right. It's very discouraging, and it's a time for everyone to get off the sidelines. Everybody needs to be engaged, whether it's helping as a reading tutor in your local grade school or start making a reader today or at the food bank, whether it's running for office, whether it's helping out on a campaign. But nobody in America can sit still until we reclaim our We the People democracy. Yeah. So you're doing a lot to accomplish that, to reclaim We the People democracy, Senator Jeff Merkley. But you were just involved in a big way with what's going on down on our southern border. You want to give us a recap? You bet. The administration has been plotting and, and planning almost since it came into office on how it was going to say to the American people, we have a wave of murderers and robbers swarming our border. But meanwhile, what they're really planning to do is stop families fleeing persecution 
from coming to our border by mistreating those families, by criminalizing the parents, by taking away the children, inflicting trauma on them as a message of deterrence, the exact opposite of the vision of the, the Statute of Liberty. And this has gone through many phases now. The administration gave up the child separation when they were taken to task by the American public back in June of, of last year after I went down to the border. And the courts weighed in as well, and that was great. Uh, but now we have the administration uh, saying they never even had such a policy uh, after having locked up and separated uh, thousands of, of, of children. And, and Kirsten Nielsen, the Secretary of Homeland Security, is is right at the kind of the point person uh, on that. And, and Sir, just hold on, please. We'll be right back. Okay. 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 Everyone's talking about the decline in stock values over the last few months. If you've been listening to Lynette Zhang's YouTube show, you probably aren't surprised by the fall. Her fact-based research on markets, currencies, and economics is second to none. And her presentations have pointed to most every major downfall we've recently seen in the U.S. economy. Her video titled Just Before the Crash showed people the exact patterns to look out for and now has over 210,000 views and counting. Lynette Zhang has been on my show and works with my friends at ITM Trading. I highly recommend looking them up as they are pioneers in creating wealth protection strategies with gold and silver. If you're a strategic investor looking to protect your wealth or just hedge against the most volatile markets since 2007, then call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and join the top 1% who are now accumulating very specific types, dates, and qualities of physical gold and silver. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. You're listening to Tom Hartman. On the line with us is Senator Jeff Merkley, and uh, one of the just really solid, good guys in the United States Senate. Merkley.senate.gov is his website. You can tweet him at SendJeffMerkley. We were talking just a moment ago. You were recapping basically what the Trump administration has been doing with regard to refugees seeking asylum from south of our borders and the rationale behind it. You want to recap that and then tell us where, what the current state of affairs is? You bet. They've been pursuing a policy of an inflicting trauma as a strategy of deterrence. And that means uh, criminalizing the parents. It meant the child separation policy. They now set up a system of child prisons that in December had 15,000 migrant children locked up in America. And then in family internment camps, and I've visited two of those down in, in Texas. Who would believe we have family internment camps in the United States of America? And yet we do, and they're growing. And so in the face of all this, we have to take this administration to account when it lies to Congress, when it lies to the American people. And that's what's happened with the Secretary of Homeland Security, Kristen Nielsen. She has denied there was any family separation policy. She did it under oath. I'm fed up. So that's why I launched a letter to the FBI saying it's time to do an investigation for perjury. The administration planned child separation. They implemented child separation. And to lie to Congress and the American people about it is unacceptable. There's something bizarrely, I'm not sure that ironic, ironic is the right word, about the chief law enforcement officer of the United States committing a felony before Congress right in front of the whole world on camera. It sounds like that's what you're alleging. Well, Jeff Sessions was often inaccurate to Congress. In this case, the Secretary of Homeland Security, maybe not the chief law enforcement officer, but certainly well, I guess she's a one step down security from security figure in the cabinet. Yeah. And uh, Kirsten continues in that role. She should resign. But for her, after we had 
2,700 children documented under family separation. Just last week, the inspector general came out and said the administration undoubtedly uh, locked up thousands more before and after that policy, and not just locked them up, but separated the children from the parents, an untold number. This is with our tax money, with our government, on our property, inflicting pain and suffering on children as part of a political strategy. It's unbelievable this is happening, and we got to put an end to it. Well, now there's another 800,000 families and their children who are also experiencing pain and suffering as a consequence of Trump administration policies, specifically to accomplish a political end. Your thoughts on that, and where are you taking this? Where do we go with this? What do we do about this, sir? Well, so the president, when he spoke to the American people uh, about his new plan to resolve the government shutdown, you notice he didn't say a word about those 800,000 families that are suffering or the hundreds of thousands of families of contractors who are, are suffering. He doesn't get it. He's okay inflicting trauma to migrant children and families because he doesn't feel their pain. He's okay inflicting pain and suffering on hundreds of thousands of federal workers because he doesn't feel it. And we have to take control back. Congress needs to take control of them back. And so the House adopted the policies and the, the spending bills that the Senate, under Republican leadership, had passed. They repassed them this Congress and said, Congress is supposed to set policy. Let's set it. You pass these bills, Republican Senate. We've agreed, Democratic House. Senate, repass them. Send them to the president. And Mitch McConnell is just refusing to have the Senate stand up for the bills it's already passed and basically yielding to the, the president's temper tantrum. What can we do? What can average citizens do? I mean, is this time for us to call 202-224-3121, call the, the switchboard for the Senate and, and say, I want to talk to my senators? Early and often, especially if you have a, if you have a Democratic senator, say, stay the course. If you have a Republican senator, say, stand up and repass those spending bills and put our government back to work. The hostage taking by the president, who, by the way, had agreed to these bills, before, at the time that they were passed by the Senate, tell them to end the hostage-taking, vote on these bills, reopen the government, and then fight for real border security, not a 30-foot, 4th-century wall that is now a symbolism across the world of racism. Sir, do you sense that any of your Republican colleagues might be uh, willing to back away a little from their embrace of Mr. Trump on this issue? Yes, yes. They are searching for a way out. They are very worried about alienating the members of their base for their next primary election. But there are just times when you have to do what's right for America, and that means stand up for these bipartisan bills, Republican-led bills from the Senate, and uh, stand up for the principles of, of putting America back to work. There you go. Senator Jeff Merkley, always standing up for America. Merkley.senate.gov, the website, send Jeff Merkley is the Twitter handle. Senator Merkley, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tom. Please Fair keep enough. up the great work and keep us up to date on, on your other ambitions. And we'd love to have you back and talk about that. <laughs> Will do. Thank, thank you, Senator. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. On the line with us, Luke Vargas, the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News based out of New York City. Search Luke Vargas wherever you get your podcasts. Luke Pence is sending out a video message to anti-government protesters in Venezuela. 
is Trump and the Republicans in the United States Senate pushing and voting to uh, give hundreds of millions of dollars to a Russian oligarch, but refusing to give a paycheck to 800,000 American workers. Is this coming out of the libertarian billionaires' hatred and antipathy for all things government? Or is the effort much more narrow bore? Is this simply Trump trying to shut down the FBI? And I guess on Friday, Mueller loses his grand jury because the federal courts would get shut down. Is it more narrow bore? And if it is this larger, we hate government in general philosophy that we've been hearing from libertarians ever since David Koch ran for president in 1980, or vice president, is that the thing that's animating Mike Pence in saying to the anti-government protesters in Venezuela, yeah, we hate government too. I'm not sure I can tie it all back to uh, the uh, domestic political forces here in the United States, but I will say this message, if your listeners haven't had a chance to check it out, do it after the program, because it's less than 90 seconds from the vice president, and it is, I think, a pretty historic announcement he made today. Venezuela is clearly embroiled in a presidential crisis right now of the sort that even makes the crisis that country has been in over the last few years, kind of a slow burn, look kind of tame by comparison. Right. Plus they I got mean, like a 100,000% inflation rate or 10,000% inflation rate. They're, yeah, I mean, the, just melting the economic down. stuff's a continual mess. And the migration crisis out of that country looks to be worsening, and I could see it definitely worsening. But the political crisis, I think, has reached a peak. You had Nicolas Maduro inaugurated on the 10th of this month for another six years something that his opponents say is just unconstitutional. He didn't even win the vote, they allege, and it was not legitimate to begin with. And I think on top of that, you had a failed coup yesterday. Last week, you had the leader of the National Assembly, which is an elected legislative body in Venezuela that has since sort of been replaced by Nicolas Maduro. He created a separate legislature that is under his control in 2017. But this old one, which is filled with his opponents, is still acting. And they have declared a man named Juan Guiado as their president, the acting president of Venezuela. I don't, we didn't talk about this last week, but the White House now recognizes this man as the president of Venezuela, as does the Organization for American States, Brazil, uh, Chile, Colombia. So there is almost like two Whoa. presidents in this country right now. And, and so then enter Pence today, who says, hola, I'm Mike Pence. It's kind of funny. It's kind of awkward to start, but he goes into it. And I mean, he really doesn't pull back. He says, look, the U.S. supports the people of Venezuela who are yearning for freedom. We're calling for a transitional government. Here's a quote. Maduro is a dictator with no legitimate claim to power. He has never won the presidency in a free and fair election and has maintained his grip and power by usurping or imprisoning, rather, anyone who dares to oppose him, end quote. I mean, so the U.S. is throwing our weight behind the opposition here, which I'm really curious to to speak to some folks in Venezuela and, and experts elsewhere to get a sense of whether they view this as useful public diplomacy or as almost fanning the flames. I mean, it bears repeating uh, Maduro and his predecessor, Hugo Chavez, um, co- complain all the time and complained all the time about the fact that, you know, the U.S. is ready to overthrow the government and invade the country. And there are Pence's message so unsubtle in many ways. I, I wonder if it almost puts this opposition leader at risk. You know, you, you know Hugo yet. Chavez yeah. uh, repeatedly pointed out that uh, Venezuela is one of the few countries in the in the in, in the world, actually, uh, may, you know, with large oil reserves 
where mm-hmm. the oil reserves are owned by the government rather than a private for-profit corporation on behalf of, yep. of a billionaire class, yep. and that the very wealthy, the billionaire class in Venezuela for years has been trying to take down this government because they want to privatize the oil industry there and make themselves in, worth hundreds of billions of dollars instead of just a few billion dollars. And that that has been what is driving all this anti-socialism, anti-government stuff for years and years and years. Um, do you give any credibility to that claim? Well, look, I think there's clearly uh, state assets that a lot of moneyed interest would be excited to pick over in the event of a reshuffling of government. But I would say most of the uh, reporting I've done on Venezuela uh, makes it pretty clear that the, the vast wealth of that country is being squandered in the current uh, government arrangement as well. It's, it's yeah. not as if, you know, we're taking the, the people are really enjoying the spoils of these resources. There's tremendous mismanagement and graft. This is and, maladministration. And favors, right, that are being handed around. And so, I don't know, but it, it is, given the fact that you had the failed coup, failed coup yesterday, the U.S. is clearly backing the opposition leader. I would be worried for his safety and for his freedom. It's the kind of scenario where you could easily see after this message today, the U.S. seeming to give a thumbs up to these efforts to unseat the president, you know, you could well have a, a charge against the opposition leader say, hey, you, you're part of that U.S.-led coup attempt against him. I mean, it's, it's right. not easy to draft this stuff up, so let's watch this carefully, but what a statement by Pence. Yeah, amazing, amazing. I had no idea. Uh, Luke Vargas, Chief Foreign Correspondent of Talk Media News. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Tom. Talk to you soon. Thank you. And you can follow Luke on Twitter at The Courier as well and and check out his podcasts. Stephanie in Hopkins Park, Illinois. Hey, Stephanie, what's up? Well, I mean, it's it's two things. It's it's on the economic issues. One is a short story. I had two farmers sitting at McDonald's talking, and they were worried because both of them had to plow under their sowing field, so there was nowhere to send them. You know, granaries were full, and they weren't selling because, you know, China's not buying. The one farmer was saying he didn't know what crop to grow next year with soy. He couldn't grow vegetables because we don't have enough people to pick them. They're, they're being run out the country. He was really in the corner. He was almost in tears. Wow. Yeah. And I wasn't talking to him. I was just listening to him talking. They were both upset with Trump for the tariffs. And they were upset about, you know, running out of migrant workers. Because, you know, well, I'm in Kankakee County. You know, Kankakee County is what, 80% farms. Yeah. And basically, I've been driving, it's one in three farms are up for sale. Wow. All over Michigan. So, farm, yeah. This, this is like yeah. the 80s, you know, when Reagan allowed the giant ag companies to start combining and forming into trusts, and they just wiped out the farmers. You had Willie Nelson doing farm aid out there to help the poor farmers who were ruined by Reagan's policies. And a lot of family farms, a lot of family farmers ended up as sharecroppers, essentially. You know, they had to sell their farm, their home, their land to the big ag companies, and then they were hired by those big ag companies to work their own farms. I mean, and now it's even getting worse. That's amazing, Stephanie. Secondly, I work in a social service field most of my life, and I have several friends who have had uh, roof homes and things like that. Mm -hmm. With the food stamps being cut, a lot of group homes, each kid gets their own $100 of food stamps, they combine it all together to feed the whole house. Right. So these people don't know how they're going to feed these children. These people, some of them are disabled. Well, most of them are developmentally disabled or have behavior disorders and can't go home working through DCSF. So they're wondering what is, how are they going to feed these children? They said it's close to 4 million contractors that are not getting paid and probably won't get paid because of this shutdown. Wow. So the economy is going to sink so fast yep. before people understand 
how it got to fall so fast. And my mother just got into a, a beautiful sister living, and they're telling her without some of the federal funding, she may have to go home, leave. Yeah, the federal workers will miss their paycheck on January 25th. The federal judiciary runs out of money on January 25th. This is amazing. So there's two, Stephanie, real quickly, there's two stories in the Financial Times that speak to the stuff that you're talking about. One says that, and this is kind of very much under the radar, says that uh, Donald Trump is thinking seriously about eliminating his Chinese tariffs so that they'll start buying soybeans and things again. In other words, the political pressure is getting really intense, and he's just going to kind of pretend he never did it and give China whatever they want. And the other one is about the government employees and the contractors, what they're going through, and, and how the chairman of the New York Fed in an interview, I believe it was with the Financial Times, said that exactly what you just said, this shutdown is going to show up in the economic numbers fairly soon and it's going to be fairly drastic. Well, anyway, I just hope people don't hit the streets because one young man told me, if my baby has to eat and there's a store down the street that has formula, I'm going to go get it. Yeah. Well, that's going to be a tough one. It's going to be a real, because that feeds right into the hands of Donald Trump. It's, you know, they, the Republicans love nothing more than looters. But I get what you're talking about, Stephanie. And I think that, you know, we're, it's tough times, desperate times. Rudy in Bullhead City, Arizona. Hey, Rudy, you got the last minute of the show. What's up? I love you, my friend. Putin wins. You know, why was there five meetings with Trump and Putin and there's no notes? And yeah. I'll tell you, out here, I had to listen to right wing radio. These people, they want to shoot Tom. These, they're ready for a civil war. They have this, they have enough guns. They just can't wait to start shooting because we're not Americans. They call us the enemy or socialist or Marxist. It's pathetic, Tom. I love you. Great show. But yeah. Uh, Thank you, Rudy. Yeah, this is the, what you're looking at is the consequence of 40 years of right-wing billionaires uh, going back to the Powell memo in 1971. Right-wing billionaires funding fundamentally anti-American uh, literature, media outlets, think tanks, um, politicians, the whole bunch. And I say anti-American in that I think of America as America post-Franklin Roosevelt, and these guys want to take us back to an America pre-Franklin Roosevelt. No Social Security, no unions, no protections, no job security, no unemployment benefits, no safety uh, regulations, you know, uh, the whole bit. That's their goal. And they've been right up front about it, by the way, you know, to their credit, I suppose, for years and years and years. So we've got a big job ahead of us. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. We can't, you know, we can't rely on our politicians to do this. We need you and all your friends. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.